like we were off. The only thing we did miss was that burp. Um, oh no! It's quite a good burp. That's a shame. God, that's yeah. yeah, lost to the ages now. I know, and it was a spontaneous burp as well. It's not a burp that can be you know, <laughs> just conjured up on a whim. Speaking of things conjured up on a whim, what did you think of the song? The <laughs> the Companions of the Bog Brush song as yes. our first patron offer. A very, very, very funny. I was listening to it <laughs> as I was walking back from having just gone up the road to do some sprint training. And um, I was giggling out loud as I was walking through the street. Um, it was very, very funny. <laughs> a lot longer than I thought. I thought it was going to be a quick jingle. Oh, no, you get two... It's get a Beatles song. Two minutes, you get a seven-inch vinyl record's worth. <laughs> Definitely a good tune. Uh, very funny. I'm glad you like it. There's two more on the way. I've written the Night of the Flannels. Oh, yes. Uh, so that just needs recording. And um, I'm trying my hand at... <laughs> I'm trying my hand at hip-hop, Tom, for the commander of the bubble bath. So we'll see how that one comes out. Might need, well, it, might need rewriting. That has, that has to be the best one, doesn't it? Because they're paying the most. So they have to have a tip-top. And you've already set the bar high. They have to have a tip-top song. Well, no, hang on. That's not how the economics of this works. If you pay for, if you pay for the, first, the first level, you're getting a £3 song. On top of that, you're just getting a bonus £1 song for each level. Yeah. Yeah, that's a significant increase. <laughs> uh, what sort of hip hop are you going for? You know, LL Cool J style. Are you going to go a bit a little more bit of, pop nineties? Going a bit of a uh, West, Hammer? bit of West Coast, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't know what that means. Bit um, of fl- a <laughs> bit of flow. Spit some bars. Okay. Don't know what that some means. Ill rhythms. <laughs> <laughs> Still lost. Yeah. Um, Me too. This is going to be fun. Is it going to be gritty? Is it going to be gritty? Uh, It's going to be a word that rhymes with gritty. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I am looking forward to it. It is quite a talent. I mean, you were doing it down when you sent me the link, and I listened to it. I thought it was outstanding. Very, very good. I I mean, yeah, but you don't play guitar, so you don't know how much I mangled it. (laughs) That's true. I have no no musical talent whatsoever. Um, Um, I like the way you do your own backing vocals as well i just imagine yeah. you having to do a live version of this and having three of you in the back a little bit like like one of those people dr- with uh, or the jackson fives and there's only one real oh, guy the- in the middle and they're all on poles yeah yeah, yeah no, i was thinking <laughs> of the drifters oh, right. i was thinking just three of you in the background sort of bobbing back and forth clicking your fingers <laughs> well the thing is i have to do backing vocals again to hide the quality <laughs> of the primary vocals i mean there are definitely some bum notes in there well, I'll tell you what I might do. Rather than our usual uh, usual intro to the podcast, our usual uh, sound effect, I might just give them five seconds of what you can expect if you uh, become a £3 patron of That Was Genius via our website, thatwasgeniuspodcast.com. Yeah, absolutely. Just reveal a little bit. Just a small amount of testicle. Because um, that's what <laughs> Loof, we've got to do. Loof us it? out. <laughs> yeah, we got to. Leave them wanting more. We can't more. give them the full Monty yet. No. You know, we've got to tempt them in to that £3, uh, £3 a month. Chinese bamboo bumwood from 100 years AD To the sack of room by vandals in the 5th century Away were swept the toilet sticks with ends so flannelly To the rolls we know today developed by Joe Gaiety Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the little history podcast in which Tom, who's the man over there, 
Hello. And I, Sam, the man of many voices, some of them rather posh, uh, discuss history topics on a theme each week. We decide the theme the week in advance, but everything else that happens is a surprise. And we had an amazing audience suggestion by someone with a very good name this week, didn't we, Tom? Uh, yes, we had uh, Sam suggested nurses. She did, yes. Very she, good she, suggestion. Yeah, yep. she is a nurse, suggested nurses. She has a good name. We couldn't say no. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. And the nurses are doing a good job at the moment, aren't they? They are. They're pretty busy. So they deserve... We we didn't even hesitate, did we, Sam? We did not, no. She's a nurse. We're going to do what she wants. Yep, absolutely. And speaking of which, I've done a nurse on the front line. Have you? So there we go, yeah. When did that happen? Oh, sorry, this is your topic. My apologies. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was slightly slow with that one, but yes, no, I got there in the end. <laughs> Crikey, that was a seductive evening in ED. <laughs> Went in with the prolapse, came out. <laughs> Happy as Larry. <laughs> Finger up the bum hole gets everyone going, doesn't it, Sam? <laughs> I mean, they've got that written above the uh, proctology department <laughs> front door <laughs> in the local hospital. <laughs> one of the bum is as good as two in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't take long. Oh right. God! Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got to get some silliness out out of the way pretty soon. We, you know, we've got to get some silliness silliness in at the start of the recording because I, my topic isn't particularly funny. I'll no, you sent me a message, didn't you, about this? And because I was originally yeah. going to do uh, kind of frontier medicine women in the in the 18th century and kind of uh, emancipated or free or freed slaves who became healers. And they're all very depressing stories, uh, but very interesting, but very depressing. And then I got a message from you saying, for the love of God, do something cheerful. Mine's the most <laughs> depressing story I've ever done. <laughs> very interesting, but awful. My story is fantastic. It is really, and the only reason I, I debated for about 48 hours whether I should do this one, because I've read the story and I thought it's a fantastic story, but it is very sad. But there are some very uplifting themes of strength, stoicism, resilience, camaraderie. Yeah, of all the things I've researched for this podcast, this has been one of the few stories that actually elicited a strong emotional response. And it's worth reiterating that I'm British, so that emotional response was a sort of quiver quiver of the top lip, a (laughs) slightly raised eyebrow. (laughs) And you put put your teacup down. Yeah, my my pupils faintly dilated. Um, It's very strong stuff. For an Englishman, absolutely yes. Only, only usually shown during the Queen's speech and at funerals. I think yes, yes, and whenever I hear the national anthem, of course, or the name Winston. Oh. Yes, that someone's <laughs> named their child Winston. <laughs> well, we actually put the entire podcast recording off by twenty-four hours so I could find a fun story to counter yours. <laughs> but to I did, man- but I did manage it. I found it's not an outright stupid story. I, t- I tried bloody hard. But, uh, but it is a great story of daring do. Not many Japanese nurses, were there? Hiding, be- <laughs> hiding beneath bridges. <laughs> not, not, many, not many nurses in Native American mythology. No, not a huge number, no. I mean, of the places I tried, of the places I searched around, Japanese folklore pretty much came up empty. Japanese later history, mm, avoid. <laughs> That's a theme that's going to be touched on shortly. Yeah. Yep. Mm. <laughs> Russian history nurses weren't very successful. Most most of them died, as happens in <laughs> Russian literature. So, uh, 
No, settle settle on good old Blighty. Excellent. Should we do audience feedback? Go on, let's do a wee bit of audience feedback. We haven't had a huge amount. We did have a... Who who commented? Someone someone said something. They commented about my grammatically incorrect German reference to uh, Dick Hare being fat man in German. Toasty has written, fat man is more like dicker man. But uh, but Dick Hare, of course, works better with the joke. I don't know. I think dicker man's quite... <laughs> Wicker Man does sound good. Sounds like yeah. a breed of dog, doesn't it? Well, it sounds like the pornographic uh, remake of The Wicker Man. Wicker <laughs> <laughs> Man just... Which is a sexy film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, 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 you are. Those remote islands of Scotland. <laughs> uh, where? Well, I'm trying to look. We, I think we got another iTunes review. Uh, yes. Red Red Euphoria or Red Euphoria Red Euphoria wrote on iTunes highlight of my week that's very nice it's very rare that anything truly makes me laugh out loud but this podcast does there are equal parts rude jokes and knowledge sure they're equal parts kind of a 40-60 split I would recommend this to any history fan that can take a joke (laughs) come for the learning stay for the accents that's That's an excellent review thank you very much that's a solid review thank you you did also mention last week um, that this is a little bit masturbatory, and I agree with you. I think it's worth pointing out to listeners that we are also willing to read out your negative feedback. Yeah, we. Um, so, <laughs> so please come forth, um, <laughs> so long as it's constructive. <laughs> well, no, we read out all feedback, whether it's constructive or not. But you, you, you respond in kind if it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. You responding, you, you respond in fairly unkind if it is constructive. <laughs> I just, I, my knuckles come out if someone criticises us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a posh Englishman at Eton. <laughs> Except you're probably slightly swearier and, and more common. Let's be honest. Slightly more vulgar. Yeah, <laughs> common and vulgar. That's our comedy duo name. Right, who's going to go first this week, Tom? I think that's all the feedback. What's the best way to structure it so that um, the audience? I think. Shall I go first? Okay, you go first with something light-hearted. I'll go heavy, and then we'll finish it off with a bit of razzmatazz. Ooh, go on then. It's just like watching The Dicker Man. <laughs> I haven't seen The Wicker Man. Am I right in thinking it's a cult 70s horror set in remote Scotland? Is that right? It is, yes. There's a very bad remake of it later on. Right. Which I think might have involved Nicolas Cage in some respect, in some capacity. Oh, God. How could that be any worse? How could that be... It's got to be better if it's a horror. Yes, Wicker Man 2006 remake with uh, Nicolas Cage. Wow. With a 3.7 out of 10 on IMDb. 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, oh 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> that hurts. That's a, Even for a Nicolas Cage film. That's a horror film in and of itself, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm going to kick us off today, Tom, with an incredible story of two very unlikely heroines whose amazing motorbike racing abilities, yes, that's right, saw them set wow. off on a mad adventure around Flanders in World War One. Of course, Tom, of course, I'm going to be talking about Elise Knocker and Myrie Chisholm, also known as the Madonnas of Pervase. Sorry, Knocker and Chisholm? Knocker and Chisholm, yeah. Nothing, nothing funny there. We're two of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing to see here. No. Well, do you know what? And I hadn't actually picked up... Knocker, I thought, ha, Knocker, that's funny. I hadn't even picked up on uh, on Chisholm. On on Madame Chisholm. I hadn't even picked up on Chisholm. Knocker and Chisholm. (laughs) Fuck's sake. (laughs) How did I not... How did I overlook that? Sounds like a producer (laughs) of porn, doesn't it? Knocker and Chisholm. (laughs) 
So yes, they were known as the Madonnas of Pervase, or it's possibly pronounced, Tom, the Madonnas of Pervies, which is funny, Tom, because Pervies is a town in the Belgian municipality of Dixmead, which is funny because it sounds rude. Right, so we have... OK, let's get let's cover this over again. We've got um, Knockers and Chisholm... <laughs> The yep. Madonnas of Purvies yep. <laughs> in the district of... In the di- district of Dixmead. <laughs> Dixmead. Excellent. It's, Dixmead sounds a little bit like what you drink at a rugby gathering when you've gone when to you've the lost. and left a pint out. <laughs> yeah. And everyone else in the team has dipped their willy in it. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds exactly like what that is. <laughs> Dixmead. <laughs> You're the captain of the piss. You're the captain of the piss. Drink your dicks, me. Drink your dicks, me. You're the captain of the piss. God bless rugby players. So, uh, so Knocker and Chisholm, Tom, were two rebels and petrol heads from the start. Elsie was born in Devon in 1884 and was the daughter of a doctor but was orphaned aged just four or five and was adopted by a teacher who didn't have very much money but knew about the importance of education and so she was very well raised and sent around Europe to various auspicious schools because her parents died. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. That's, that's how it usually works. Why well, no, I just thought they might have been so they don't want you. Bad attitude. <laughs> You're a wrong and knocker. You're a wrong and. So, so she trained as a nurse and married and had a son called Kenneth. Ah, little baby Kenneth. Yeah, Ken. Yeah. There's some names, aren't there, where you just you, you look at someone and you think, at some point, your parents named you that. Who pops out a beautiful little baby and says, you know what? Looks like Ken. Looks like Ken. <laughs> yeah, you look like Ken. You look like a gav. <laughs> you look like Ken Knocker. Yeah, you do. <laughs> no, you're right, because Ken... You, you, I can't... Some names, I can imagine... A boring old accountant being called Ken. I can't imagine a beautiful little baby being called Ken. No. And sometimes it works the other way, doesn't it? So you get a name that sounds wonderful for a baby, but you can't imagine a grown-up being called... Precious. Little little Tinky Poos. (laughs) My little humpy dumpkin. (laughs) I used to know a girl from New Zealand who called her bump and as-yet-unnamed newborn sex fruit. Mm. That's That's quite a name, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, going to get bullied for that one. Sex fruit present. So, yeah, Elsie trained as a nurse and married and had, our darling little baby Ken. But the marriage pretty quickly went sour and she divorced. Now, this was still a pretty big deal in Edwardian England, so she just pretended her husband was dead. That's fine. Yeah. Did he play along? Yeah, yeah. Well, did he ruin it, the ruse somewhat? Yeah. Like, think about his normal he business. Popped, <laughs> yeah, he popped out of the coffin at the funeral and went, rah! <laughs> I've had enough of this. I mean, originally I thought I'd play along, but I've just, I'm lying here thinking I just cannot carry on with this. The deception has become too much. <laughs> I just cannot go on like this. Morally, I just cut. The thought of being buried alive, I'm fine with, but it's the thought of being dishonest to those yes, I love. But lying. <laughs> Meanwhile, Myrie, uh, Myrie Chisholm was born in 1896, God's sake, and couldn't have had a more different upbringing. Her Scottish dad was a military officer and the family owned plantations in Trinidad and pretty much lived a life of luxury. That's That's yes. That's <laughs> oh, we'll revisit some of that in a bit, Tom. <laughs> mm, OK. I've got a cracking bit of the family history, won't we, later on? Oh, no, but I've got a cracking joke about Leopold of Belgium coming up. Oh, excellent. Older Leo. 
rubbing what's left of my hands together in glee. And if you don't get that joke, all will be explained. <laughs> so as a teenager, uh, Myri had seen her older brother get into that newfangled sport of motorbike racing. Uh, motorbikes had only been available since the 1890s and were pretty bloody dangerous, much like they are today. But she wanted a piece of that action. So against her mother's wishes, her dad bought her a bike and she immediately became, like a lot of motorbike riders, an absolute tool and a bit of a fuckwit, blatting around country lanes, <laughs> racing anything she could find and competing in time trial competitions. <laughs> Bear in mind, on proper roads weren't really a thing in the countryside at this point. You know, motorways and A roads didn't really exist. It was more like kind of motocross in corsets and bonnets. <laughs> it was really very dangerous. Yeah, it doesn't sound, it does sound very dangerous. Yeah, and it was on one of these races around a hairpin bend somewhere near Bournemouth that she met Elsie, who by now... <laughs> Go around the bend. <laughs> yeah. Hello, darling. When I, say, when I say met, there was a horrible accident. Had <laughs> a bit late, didn't you? <laughs> oh, 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 sorry, better concentrate on the road. <laughs> Turn coming up. I'm just being distracted by my lady brain looking at all the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that one of the spectators hadn't had his shirt ironed outrageous <laughs> she says whilst covered in castor oil <laughs> so elsie in the in the interim since being divorced uh, had also gotten into biking and she was well known by now for tearing around in a distinctive leather skirt and jacket uh, which oh, I in say. her I, I say which in her own words on sale now at <laughs> knockers and chisholm <laughs> <laughs> yes knockers Knock and chisholm's Le leather emporium <laughs> and that's an episode title <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> I, 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 I like that. I like that. Pen. Make a note. <laughs> Little baby cannot. Always makes a note of his interesting <laughs> thoughts. Funny things that I have seen. God, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a bit like Colin Hunt from the Far Show, isn't it? <laughs> So, so yes, Elsie liked to wear a leather jacket and skirt, which uh, helped, quote, keep it all together. And the two became very quickly inseparable. And that's, uh, I mean, best friends. They didn't just become they mangled did. together in a horrible <laughs> motorbike accident. Some four-limbed, two-headed monster of a woman. <laughs> With a headlight sticking out of her ears. Hello! <laughs> I'm Knuckles Chisholm! <laughs> The motorbike cyborg. <laughs> one of them could only talk when the other one was revving, <laughs> revving her ears. <laughs> and the harder she read the ears, the faster she talked. <laughs> Hello, my name is Elsie. I like motorbikes. <laughs> 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 Uh, what a wonderful and horrific thought. <laughs> I'm the one who's going to have to draw that. <laughs> Fuck. Have you ever seen the uh, Jim, will Jim Will Paint It on Facebook, our favourite Facebook artist who does uh, horrible and bizarre pictures in Microsoft Paint? One of his fans once requested that he draw Thomas the Tank Engine, but it turns out that rather than just a train with a face, it was actually an experiment by the Fat Controller <laughs> to graft a human head onto a train. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the cross between Frankenstein's monster and Thomas and the, the Tank Engine. The human centipede, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The director of that died a few uh, a few days ago, didn't they? Oh, did he? Saw that in the news, yeah. Oh, there we go. Never seen it. No, neither, neither have I. Not sure I want to. 
No, not really my bag, despite my German upbringing. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, the two very quickly became inseparable and began to compete in so-called, and I love this, women's motorbike races at the time, Tom, were called Stiff Ladies Reliability Trials. <laughs> yes, that's How right. How reliable is your stiff lady? Knocker and Chisholm's Stiff Ladies Reliability Trials. How strange. Which I can only presume was some kind of, like, the judged at the end of the ride. This lady is very stiff, and this lady is rather floppy. We shall award the prize of best stiff lady to this lady, <laughs> who has maintained structural integrity. <laughs> floppy lady, go and practice. <laughs> Sluggy over here. <laughs> yeah. She flops sadly out <laughs> of the tent. <laughs> <laughs> she, she slithers back to her car. <laughs> Yeah, she can't drive the bike home anymore. She just has to kind of, like, puddle into the sidecar. It's a little bit like Terminator 2. Yeah, exactly like Terminator 2. Liquid metal. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back as, as an Edwardian <laughs> lady. That's <laughs> Madame Chisholm. Give me your clothes. <laughs> give, give me your clothes and your motorcycle. Oh, I've had to do that joke, you Oh, kid. go on, you do. You can, no, you can probably do the quote yeah. better. You can do the quote better than I can. Go on, you do it. I want your bodies. I want your. <laughs> I want your napkins and I want your motorcycle. <laughs> I want your corset, your bonnet, and your motorcycle. <laughs> motorcycle. <laughs> Beautiful. That was much better than mine. So when World War One started, the pair moved to London which, uh, to become dispatch riders for the Women's Emergency Corps, which was the organisation founded to set up training for the huge numbers of women needed as doctors and nurses in, in Britain and Belgium. And it was on one of their trips through London traffic that Myrie came to the attention of a guy called Hector Munro, head of the Flying Ambulance Service. Wow, he sounds like yeah, a hero. Yeah, what a title, absolutely, Fuck yes. Me. Hector Munro, head of the Flying Nurses. Yeah, well, Hector Munro's Flying Ambulance Service doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Monty Python's Flying Circus, but it is probably more useful as an organisation. <laughs> it sounds like a good children's book, doesn't it? Hector Monroe's... What did you say it was? Hector Monroe's Flying... Hector Am Monroe's Flying Ambulance Service. Wow, that's a great name. Is it the Ministry of Silly Walks? No, it's a compound spiral fracture of the tibia. <laughs> let's get you... Let's put you down and put that on the cast. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the Messiah. He's a very badly injured boy. Etc, etc. Hector was amazed at this woman's ability to weave through the London traffic and presumably, like most motorbike riders in London, drive up the inside of large goods vehicles, rev aggressively at any taxi which didn't move fast enough off a red light, or honk at a pedestrian who had the audacity to cross the road. As you might be able to tell, Tom, I'm a bit bitter from my years of commuting in London. <laughs> Understandable. So, the Flying Ambulance Service, it was a volunteer field service which was set up to get injured troops from the trenches to field hospitals at great speed. Uh, great speed, of course, being relative in World War One. Several hours. <laughs> the ambulances would usually wait in the rear lines, roughly where the artillery was, and would rush casualties to safety. And it was genuinely a very dangerous job. Artillery were obviously targets for enemy air raids and enemy artillery shooting at each other. And for the women who volunteered, it was pretty much the most dangerous thing that they could do in World War One. And what were they? What were they in? Were they in sort of jeeps, four by fours? No, well, they were by in um, basically converted buses that had been kind of sourced by the Red Cross. So they would be waiting in double-decker buses and makeshift ambulances by the by the guns. They were proper ambulances as well, but they were really pretty basic. I mean, you're talking 1914, so four by fours didn't really exist then. And they wouldn't have been fantastic roads, would they? They would have had bad suspension, crap roads, 
and very yep. badly injured patients. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ab- you can see absolutely. where this is going. Go- yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um- you can see the gag. <laughs> <laughs> Doors popping open. <laughs> <laughs> patients banging up and down, hitting, <laughs> banging their heads against the roof. <laughs> Bang, oof, bang, yeah. oof, bang, yeah, oof. Back, back and forward, head whacking one end of the carrier. That's, that's why they called it the flying ambulance service, because if you got in the back of one of the ambulances, you'd be sent flying. <laughs> so these women did amazing work, and they won a ton of bravery medals in World War One. But Elsie and Myrie pretty quickly realised that there was a lot of time being wasted and a lot of people needlessly being injured and dying. <laughs> whilst being driven the 15 miles on terrible bouncy roads from the battlefield <laughs> to the hospital. <laughs> in fact, so many were dying en route that they were just being piled up outside the hospitals and really? to store them. <laughs> the, joke was, the joke was actually quite pertinent. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> terrible roads, not a very safe way of transporting people on those terrible roads. <laughs> Crikey. And it could take several hours in bad conditions to get from the the rear trenches to to the nearest hospital. Right, so thinking of a safer way of getting people, injured personnel, to the field hospitals. Yeah, it was about 15 miles away, so it could take well over an hour to get them there, and it was just too late for a lot of these really badly injured people. And so what they decided was that they needed to be where the action was. In fact, one of their colleagues said of uh, Knocker at the time, she had an irresistible inclination towards the greatest possible danger, which I presume is why she rode motorbikes. But what it came to was that they decided that they would actually move to the front lines. So in November 1914, they both quit the service and rented an abandoned cellar in the town of Ypres, or Wipers, depending on your pronunciation, and set up the Poste de Secure Anglaise, or British First Aid Post, just 100 metres behind the trenches. Oh, crikey. Literally is very, very, very close. And for the next three and a half years, often under enemy fire, the two treated thousands of troops from all sides, with Elsie doing most of the dressing because she was a trained nurse, and uh, Myrie blitzing the men who were fit enough to travel as fast as she could back to the hospitals once they'd been stabilised and were capable of making the journey. On what? On a motorbike? Probably in an ambulance, I'd have thought. They did both have motorbikes with them, and they did ride the motorbikes around. Only 100 metres? Just 100 metres from the trenches, and they spent three and a half years there. Wow. Absolutely astonishing. That's that's unbelievably brave. Unbelievably brave. And not only that, the pair often ran into no-man's land under fire, these two women, who, bear in mind, were not, by this point, members of any military force. They were civilians who would run into no-man's land under fire carrying wounded men out on their backs. They would fire them and carry them out. Once, in fact, they ran to the aid of a crashed German pilot under fire from their own side and managed to get him out of his plane and to safety. Nutters. Absolute nutters, yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, knocker and jism. What do you like? <laughs> Through all of this, they, as I said, they were completely independent. They were civilians. Since leaving the flying ambulance, they'd lost all of their financial support from the Red Cross because they were no longer part of a government organisation, so they had to supply their own ambulances and their own equipment. But they were very, very savvy at marketing themselves. And by keeping a photo diary of their time in Flanders and speaking a lot to the press and making sure they were always available for interviews, they were able to become two of the most photographed and notable women of World War One, and found themselves with a host of sponsors and admirers, which, I mean, must have been wonderful having all the press around for the poor wounded bastards having to line up for photos with them whilst oh, being tended yeah. to. <laughs> It would have been nice, wouldn't it, when you're running out into the trenches and you've got sponsors, so you can sort of you put on your Nike trainers. Absolutely, looking yeah. Looking fab. 
Yeah. Ready for your Instagram photos, you dive over a German pilot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, diving over. <laughs> yeah. With, with, a, with a tub of fit tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And figure hugging yoga pants. This amputation has been brought to you by McScott's Whiskey. One tot and the limb is off. Hashtag ad. Okay, yeah. 10% off. Use the code in my description. <laughs> Hashtag Flanders. Hashtag just World War One things. <laughs> they were really successful though. Harrods, the very famous posh Ponzi London department store, beloved of shakes, <laughs> provided them with a thick steel door for their cellar. Uh, presumably being Harrods and beloved of shakes, it was gold-plated and covered in diamante. <laughs> Other donors meant they pretty quickly had the funds to bomb-proof and concrete line their dressing station, and they even managed to get adopted eventually by the Belgian army as kind of uh, unofficial mascots, which opened them up to getting medical supplies again. So very quickly, they managed to get a lot of support for for their endeavour. Do you think they sort of? Do you think they they ran up to a wounded soldier and um, would say, Look, "Before I'm going to do anything, I just want to need to know how many followers you've got." Yeah, this is triage. This we, is yeah. You just got to understand whether we're compatible. I've got at least I've got two hundred thousand followers. <laughs> if we're going to work together, I really need you to up your game. I mean, your engagement's solid, but the numbers aren't there. <laughs> Maybe if you posted like a sad selfie or something with a really bloody filter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. No, that is looking really good. The way your arms falling off. Yeah, let's take a snap yep. of that. Yeah. Just hold it up a little bit higher. Uh, maybe wave it around your head. Just yeah. Make it look like you've just been blown up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. You've got it. Nailed it. Oh, oh, sorry. You just got shot. Uh, <laughs> I tell you, actually, could you, could you turn your head the other way? It's, yeah, your features are slightly more symmetrical on that side because they haven't been shot off. <laughs> So with a high profile and a lot of putting themselves in harm's way, they got a lot of recognition. They got the British Military Medal, they were made officers of the Most Venerable Order of St John of Jerusalem, and they were also awarded the Order of Leopold II, Knight's Cross with Palm. And I have to be honest, Tom... <laughs> Does that mean you get a slap when you get given it? You get given the cross and Leopold slaps you around the face. Yeah. I'll say you go. No, it's a, cr- a cross knight slaps you around the face. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Across Belgian night. <laughs> I'm very unhappy about being here. Yes. Slap. <laughs> I left a perfectly good pint of Pilsner and some Mule Marine. <laughs> I'm not getting on. any beautiful Belgian chocolate for this. Slap. <laughs> <laughs> Your joke surrounding the palm was a lot nicer than mine. Uh, <laughs> because it's a hand job, did you? Is this where no, this is well, going? No, well, no. Okay. <laughs> I have to... I... <laughs> I have to be honest, Tom, anything being offered by Leopold II of Belgium which involves palms gets me very uneasy, thanks to his hobby as personal ruler of the Congo Free State, of removing the hands of any of his population which didn't meet their mining or rubber quotas. Is that right? Yes. Oh, Leopold II of Belgium owned the Congo Free State as his personal property and owned all of the population as his personal property. He created a feudal state and if the population didn't meet their rubber and ivory targets, he chopped their hands off. So the Order of Leopold II with palm (laughs) is not a prize you want to win. Your joke was more fun and less sad. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your distance from Leopold. Yeah. (laughs) But my joke had educational merit and will therefore be the one that makes the cut. Will it? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, we'll see. Uh, in 1916, Elsie married a second time. This time it was a bloke called Baron Harold de Cerclay, who, a uh, great name, a pilot in the Belgian Flying Corps. So Elsie, bless her, went from orphan to wartime heroine to baroness. That is a pretty good run. Wow. Unfortunately, in mid-1918, a massive gas attack on their dressing station forced both women back to the UK, but they didn't give up, they didn't retire, they joined the Women's Royal Air Force and toured Britain as celebrities, drivers and aircraft mechanics. Unfortunately, the pairing didn't last because news got out about Elsie's original divorce, the scandal ruined her friendship with Mari and ruined her second marriage to the Baron, and the pair went their separate ways. Myrie, despite suffering from several chronic injuries and gas inhalation, got into motor racing. <laughs> yep. Fuck it, of course she Makes did. Sense. Yep. Yep. What the doctor would recommend. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Well, the doctors did not recommend this. <laughs> you know what? I In think fact, the doctors really, really good for your lungs. Yeah. Motor racing. Yep. Leaded petrol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be wonderful for your cognitive ability. Fantastic. Absolutely. What you need is some lead. <laughs> you need some mental retardation. That is good. that is what you need. Oh, bless her, Tom. She already rode motorbikes. <laughs> I should say my dad was very into riding motorbikes and lost his leg doing it. So, oh, did he really? That's how he lost his leg. It is. So, yes, uh, Mari had to unfortunately retire from motor racing after fainting before a major race, presumably, due to massive poisonous gas inhalation, and uh, retired to farm chickens in France. That Elsie, sounds more like it, doesn't that it? That sounds more like it, doesn't it? That's what the doctor it? would recommend. Yeah. Elsie, meanwhile, rejoined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force during World War II, so she fought in both world wars, becoming a squadron officer at uh, RAF Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain, and was mentioned in dispatches twice, which means kind of being given commendations by her commanding officer uh, before retiring in 1942 to breed chihuahuas, Tom. Why not? <laughs> Fuck it, why not? And she became known for parading around London dressed like kind of a Bram Stoker or Charles Dickens character in a great big heavy gothic cloak with lots of makeup and four or five tiny yapping hate-filled Satan dogs in tow. She sounds like Cruella de Vil, that's what it sounds like. A, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. By all counts, uh, unusually for one of my stories, they both lived very long and happy lives, by all counts, afterwards. They lived until uh, mid-80s and uh, early 90s, respectively. So there you go, Tom. The amazing story of Knocker and Chisholm. <laughs> very good. That is good. That is a very good story. Mm, things are going to get more sad. Okay. So I'm just going to put it out there. Oh, Tom, when you put it out there, it's always quite sad. It... <laughs> I'm so funny. <laughs> so my story involves Australians and the Japanese, Sam. So I hear our listeners Ooh. cry. Hmm, this could go a number of ways. Will it be a shipwreck? Yes. Will it be a story of persecuted native populations? Will it involve war crimes? Or will it involve weird and wonderful monsters and their obsessions with arseholes? Is there, is there racism? <laughs> Let's spin the wheel of genius. Spin, 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 safety pin. Stop it spinning with my chin. Round it goes, up my nose. Where did it land? Nobody knows. That's right. It's shipwreck followed by war crimes. Hooray. Hey. <laughs> so, <laughs> and not even a little bit of bum-poking monsters. <laughs> no bum-poking monsters oh. anywhere. Present company accepted. <laughs> actually, no, no, no. A major theme of this is actually going to be bum-poking monsters, as we'll come on oh. to. Um, I'm going to tell you... 
let's that was a quick turnaround. Yeah, let's get it. Unfortunately, so let's no, get but on also to yes. <laughs> okay. I'm going to tell you and our listeners about the Banker Island Massacre of February 1942. We're already starting to get a feel where this is going, aren't we? More particularly, <laughs> I'm going to talk about Nurse Vivian Bullwinkle, a truly astonishing woman. Uh, one of many very, very brave, stoic nurses involved in this story. Right. There once was a man called Pete who had the most enormous feet. If the tales be true, his cock would be too, but it would, as it turns out, it was quite petite. Um, I might <laughs> throw in the odd limerick just to just lighten to, things up. Just to lighten things up. You can't, you've thrown one in right before we've started. You said the title, you said Massacre. And here's a dirty ride. <laughs> the problem is, Sam, if I put it any later, it's going to come across as very tasteless. Uh, as opposed to now. <laughs> so it's, it's got to be very close to the start and at the end. I'm not going to be okay. able to put any in between in the middle. Okay. This is a shit sandwich, is it? <laughs> this is very much a shit sandwich, yep, with okay. only shit in the middle. No, it's going to be better than that. Let me set the scene with some history. This is the learny, learny bit. December 1941, only a matter of months earlier, Germany had decided to attack the Soviet Union. Bad idea. This time, Japan decided, what the fuck, the Axis powers aren't finding this hard enough already, let's attack the USA. Hooray, because there'll be a walkover. But wait, rather than put your hands up and say, nothing to do is us, Germany and Italy declare war on the US too. Hey, there's a reason. Oh. <laughs> there's a reason the Axis powers lost World War II. <laughs> That's a nice summary. So Japan oh, very quick. emptied the... So Japan ended the war with a bang, bombing Pearl Harbor, as uh, many listeners will know, and other US bases in the Pacific, and bringing the US into the war, obviously. They also attacked British colonies in Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaya, Burma, various other places. Dutch East Indies were also attacked, and they were obviously Dutch. Darwin in Australia was also bombed, and Australian territories um, in the area were also captured, all within the space of a few months. So the Japanese entered very much with a bang. Anyway. They, they walked it, didn't they, to begin with? Yes, they did, because um, a lot of the Allied powers were focused very much in Europe, and um, there wasn't much defence. And we'll go on, Singapore was very, very important, certainly to the British defence strategy in this area. The capture of Singapore is of most interest to us here with this story. Um, the Japanese took it in February 1942, very early. Singapore was hugely important strategically to the British. It was the major British military base in that corner of the world, and Britain had a lot of, of interests in that corner of the world. The Allied forces in Singapore, mostly British, Australian and Indian, were there to fight. This wasn't a territory that was going to be lost and regained. It wasn't going to be, let's let it go, re regather our troops and then try and make some progress a little bit later on. So when the Japanese captured it, 80,000 troops surrendered, which was the biggest British surrender in the, in the nation's history. It was a massive fuck-up. And um, Winston Churchill doesn't use those words, but in his... Um, <laughs> I bet he did. It's not far off. Um, Winston Churchill <laughs> saw it as, a, as a, massive, a massive loss. Three days before the surrender of Singapore, midway through the week-long battle of Singapore, a merchant steamship turned naval ship called the SS Vinerbrook attempted to leave Singapore. It contained injured servicemen, 65 Australian nurses, and a number of civilian men, women, many elderly, and children. Somewhere in the region of 250, although I've seen... And I've actually done a shitload of research on this this week, because it's such a fascinating story. I went into quite a lot of depth. It sort of it did captivate me. In some sources, as, as few as 200, and some forces, uh, sources, as many as 300. And it was a ship designed to carry 12 people, I read somewhere. Wow. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, okay. I... I I think it was a ship, to be honest with you, I think it was a ship that could sleep 12 people. I think it could carry a, a, quite a lot more. Yeah, presumably it had some room for cargo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
extra people. Yeah. This ship was bombed by the Japanese and it sank. In a demonstration of heroism and stoicism, the first of many, the nurses on board quickly assumed positions all around the ship when it was under attack and helped all of the civilian crew into lifeboats first before doing what they could to survive the sinking whilst being strafed by Japanese planes. Incredible bravery. Mm. Many of those on the ship managed to get into lifeboats. A few inevitably died. And the survivors of the sinking found themselves washed up in various places on the island of Bangka, now part of Indonesia. And there are vivid stories of the survivors clinging to whatever they could, battling the currents in scorching heat through the afternoon and into the night, desperately trying to reach shore, where a fire had been lit on one of the beaches to attract survivors by those who'd already got to, to shore. It sounds like absolute chaos. Yeah. Around 80... So, 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 I was going to ask how many people got to, got to shore. Yeah, so around 80 survivors reunited on this beach... Um, attracted by the fires partly, and parties quickly explored the area searching for help. They discovered some uncooperative locals who informed them that the island was Japanese now, and so one of the ship's officers set off for Montauk, the island's capital, to surrender, shortly followed by a party of the civilian women and children. The 22 nurses out of the 80 who found themselves on this beach and there were 65 nurses on the boat, so 22 of them found themselves in this party, remained behind to look after the wounded servicemen. There was also one elderly lady who stayed behind with her um, husband who was injured. They erected a red cross to highlight that they were non-combatants and um, should be treated as such. That night on the beach, so and you can imagine this vivid scene, um, the survivors peered out to sea in the dark, warming themselves around this fire, watching another ship being shelled by aircraft and a few hours later 20 shipwrecked British soldiers uh, washed up on beach as well so there are now about 100 people I think it was the next morning the officer returned with 20 Japanese soldiers uh, you can see where this is going can't you uh, obviously believing that yep. he had surrendered these soldiers promptly rounded up the injured servicemen capable of walking walked them around the headland in two groups shot them and bayoneted them um, here we go war crimes hey hooray <laughs> These soldiers then, the Japanese soldiers then returned to the nurses, calmly sat down to clean their rifles and bloodied bayonets, and then ordered all of the nurses and the one elderly civilian woman who remained to be with her injured husband to walk into the surf where they were machine gunned to death. <laughs> so just <laughs> take, take a moment to, to realise why I didn't want to make much fun out of this story. Uh, yeah. The remaining injured servicemen, unable to walk, were also then killed with bayonets on the beach. The matron of the nurses, who comes up a lot in the sources, is a, is a fantastic-sounding lady called matron Irene Drummond. And she's reported to have said to the girls, Chin up, girls, I'm proud of you and I love you all, as they walked out. And the accounts of Drummond make her sound like a total legend. Calm, stoical, organised, dutiful. In fact, um, it was her who told the civilian women and children to walk to Montauk which saved their lives, as it turns out. She was instrumental in organising the fire on the beach also, which attracted many of the survivors. Very well-organised, calm-in-the-face-of-danger um, lady. As it turns out, the Japanese soldiers, the wankers, couldn't even commit a war crime properly. One of the nurses, the lady mentioned earlier, Vivian Bullwinkle, miraculously survived, and in her own words, I've got a lot of notes, by the way, Sam, I do apologise, I'm going to whiz through them. Keep going, I'm, just, I'm listening intently now, I've got no intention of, uh, of interrupting, because uh, I want to hear what happens. It is a fantastic story. Vivian Bullwinkle miraculously survived, and in her own words, quote, 
They started firing up and down the line with a machine gun. They just swept up and down the line and the girls fell one after the other. I was towards the end of the line and a bullet got me in the left loin and went straight through and came out the front. The force of it knocked me over into, into the water and there I lay. I did not lose consciousness. The waves brought me back to the edge of the water. I lay there ten minutes and everything seemed quiet. I sat up and looked around and there was no sign of anybody. Then I got up and went up into the jungle, lay down and either slept or was unconscious for, for a couple of days. So she basically passes out in the bush, mm. um, having bobbed up and down for 10 minutes, taking sort of sneaky breaths of air. A few days later, then she wakes up and finds that one of the injured servicemen from around the headland had survived too, a chap called Patrick Kingsley. And as it turns out, two other servicemen survived the execution as well by running. I think they ran out into the surf and just swam for their lives and managed to avoid being shot. Um, Kingsley had somehow survived being bayoneted and Bullwinkle dressed her wounds and his and the two of them managed to survive for about 12 days by begging for food at a nearby Indonesian village. The two rehearsed the story about how they had arrived on the island realising that they, would not, they should not mention the massacre and Bullwinkle knew that she'd have to hide her wound and they eventually conceded that they would have to surrender and hope for the best. So they arrived at a POW camp on the island fortunately discovered that the civilian women and children arrived safely and there were also 31 other nurses from the shipwreck there safe in adverted commas because we know what japanese prisoner of war camps were like yeah <laughs> of the 65 nurses on the ship 12 were presumed drowned but we'll come back to them 21 were shot and 32 survived on the beach over 80 people were murdered at least 21 of whom were women with red crosses on their uniforms the remainder of the war Bullwinkle lived in horrendous conditions in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Eight of the Australian nurses actually died in the prisoner of war camps in the subsequent years. Uh, but the, or, the nurses kept organised and kept doing what they could to help the other prisoners of war. They, this included burying the dead, taking shit and coconut shells out, out of the POW camp and into the jungle, and just generally looking after the sick. And after the war, and I'll be quick about this bit because um, there's so much to talk about, uh, Bullwinkle uh, went on to be a very well-respected and experienced nurse in Australia. So she had a very a stellar career in nursing after this when she got back. She got on with her life and it would appear had the strength to not allow this experience to define who she was. So an incredibly resilient lady. A top bloke, you could say. A top bloke? A top blokeette. Top Sheila. And um, she died in 2000. Now, there's a twist to this story, Sam. A twist brought about recently by a few historians and journalists. And the version I have told you was the version of the story from 1946. This was when it was investigated as a war crime. And to only a few years ago, in fact. So this was a story that lasted for 60 years or so. Uh, just in case things couldn't get any worse, Sam, the 21 women who were massacred on Banker Island, they were probably raped before being murdered. <laughs> Japanese, yeah, Japanese sounds sounds like Japanese soldiers in World War Two. Yeah. yeah, Japanese conduct in World War Two, um, which just makes Vivian Bullwinkle sound even more incredible. The fact that she just went on with her life, um, not letting this experience affect her. For a long time, there had been rumours that there was more to the story. Many military historians strongly believed that this was the case. I.e., there had been some sexual assault or rape taken pla- uh, that took place. But the people who experienced these atrocities, they had a code of silence to protect each other's reputations and also to facilitate, I guess, the forgetting of these events. It is well known anecdotally, I'm sure you've heard this as well, that survivors of Japanese prisoner war cramps, uh, British survivors, uh, were always very reluctant to talk about their experiences. Mm. I've heard that from my mum, who, who was a nurse, that um, when she was a young nurse, she'd nursed old um, Japanese POWs and they just wouldn't talk about it. 
it could well be that some of the survivors did things uh, with a degree of cooperation to survive. They had to do what they had to do to, to, to keep on going. These things they were pushed to do to survive, it could have just been it was a fucking awful experience. Probably yeah. more the latter. <laughs> there is also the possibility, argued by um, some of the historians, that people like Bullwinkle were actually ordered to be silent. The Australian government felt guilty that it had not done more to protect these nurses, particularly as it was known that Japanese soldiers had raped and killed British nurses when Hong Kong was taken. It has also been argued that the USA wanted to build Japan back up as a capitalist ally in the East post-war, although I can't see how censoring such a small detail in such a vast sea of war crimes <laughs> yeah. would have made Oh, yeah, better hide that, but the rape of Nanking... Mm, yeah, exactly. It's, it's fine. We can talk about that one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're talking about an Australian here. There were Australian... There were some fairly well-known Australian comfort women who were captured and taken, basically, to be prostitutes for Japanese soldiers mm. for the remainder of the war. One of the main clues regarding the rape is, is Bullwinkle's clothing. There are mismatching entry and exit holes in her clothing. And in a nutshell, the evidence seems to suggest that her clothes had been ripped off prior to being shot. And here's a quote also from a male survivor of the shooting, uh, a British survivor. All the male bodies had been piled up on top of one another in one big heap. Then I went further along and found the bodies of the Australian nurses and other women. They lay at intervals of a few yards in different positions in various stages of undress. They had been shot and then bayoneted. This is one of the chaps that swam out to sea and um, also managed to find their way back mm. into the prisoner of war camp uh, by just not mentioning what they'd witnessed. So they just came up with a story and managed to find their way back into the POW camp. Um, here's a quote from another source where a Japanese soldier was interrogated, presumably after the war, presumably as part of war crimes trials. Quote, Kiyoshi admitted to hearing screams coming from nearby houses situated between groves of pawpaw and mango trees and was told by platoon members that some officers and NCOs were pleasuring themselves, brackets raping, some Australian nurses. He was told that after the officers and NCOs were satisfied, it would be the platoon's turn. And it actually has been speculated that this account could actually refer to another massacre on the island, because some details don't add up. So possibly the 12 nurses presumed dead at sea had actually found their way to shore, only to be raped and executed as well. Uh, Bill Winkle herself, it is alleged, told a biographer off the record late in life that the rapes had taken place. You can understand why it captivated me, because it's such a brutal story, but there is this glimmer, which is the fact that many of these nurses, or Bullwinkle, survived and went on to tell her tale and live a normal life. And um, you've got all of these other nurses and civilians and soldiers who managed to survive these horrible prisoner of war camps. So thank you, Sam, for being a little bit more uplifting at the start of the recording. Yeah. Oh, fucking hell. I mean, <laughs> not much you can really say to it, is there? No, 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 no absolutely. I, I, I read it, and as I mentioned at the start in a joking manner, it did, it did elicit an emotional response. I was reading it thinking, this is just incredible. This is an incredible story, and that's why I was umming and ahhing about actually um, telling it. But it, it's a fascinating story. So there you go. That is that is Vivian Bullwinkle. Did she ever forgive the Japanese? Did she ever go to Japan? Or yes. So she actually. I don't think she went. I suspect it, well she didn't go back to Indonesia to forgive the Japanese or anything like that. But she did go back. I think as part of um, commemorations for those lost in the massacre. And I think I read that when she was there for one of these commemorations, she didn't actually recognise too much of the island. I think she found the fresh water. Mm that they had had found quite early on when they landed on the beach. Um, so she managed to 
she sort of knew her bearings enough to remember where the fresh water was but not much else interesting well well, thank you for sharing Tom Uh, yep a man once saw a big orange ghost whilst eating marmalade on toast at his posh B&B he'd been served some tea that had been spiked with shrooms by his host (laughs) (laughs) there we go (laughs) I once met a man on Hampstead Heath who was known as Arsgob Keith his mouth had the stench of an incontinent wench because he never once cleaned his teeth. <laughs> one more. One more for luck and then we're done. More. <laughs> Those are the three that I wrote. <laughs> we should probably do something light next week, shouldn't we? <laughs> yes, what have we got? What have we got in the back pocket that could be a little bit lighter? Accents was still in the back pocket. Accents. <laughs> it's not going to get much lighter than that. No, we could do accents unless you've got any other ideas. No, let's go for accents. Okay. Well, firstly, a reminder, this is usually a slightly more cheerful podcast. But <laughs> we do occasionally, we are occasionally. Um, great, amazing, amazing story, though. It is an amazing story. And I think it's an inspirational story as well. I don't quite know who or how and what circumstance it's going to inspire people. But if you're ever shipwrecked, <laughs> probably not that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also a reminder that I think next week is probably going to be well after next week I think we're probably going to turn on the the Patreon offer so subscribers on the Patreon which you can find at thatwasgeniuspodcast.com will get every episode and if you if you can't support us then that's absolutely fine we still love you dearly and we'd still uh, love to hear from you uh, but we're going to make every other episode available publicly so that will probably happen after next week's accents episode in the meantime, if you've got anything you'd like to share with us, any suggestions or comments, topics you'd like us to cover, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter, that underscore was underscore genius, on Facebook, that was genius podcast, and on Instagram, at that was genius. You can also uh, pop us an email via the website, which is that was geniuspodcast.com. Go and check it out. It's it's wonderful. It's a good website, actually. I'm I'm pleased with it. I like it. What do you get for your What do you get for your money as well, Sam? So it's it's three pounds a month, and that makes you an so three pounds a month makes you a member of the a companion of the bog brush. Yeah. Our honours system is the order of the bathtub, or order of the bathroom. So three pounds is the companion of the bog brush. Four pounds is knight of the flannels, and five pounds is commander of the bubble bath. And at each level, you get the stuff from the previous level, but you get a medal, you get a song, and you get access to all of our episodes and bonus content as well, doodles and such. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, I've and I've, fun things across our minds. I'm putting out a few doodles. I did put out a few doodles because this is obviously going out next week. Uh, but most doodles will be private because they're so damn good. <laughs> so we've got to keep those things private. So yeah, plenty, plenty on offer if uh, if you feel like you can support us and help us with coffee and things and uh, yeah Tom has heard and at the beginning of this episode in fact obviously you heard a tiny bit of the uh, the companion of the bog brush song just to prove that it's a real thing you do get a song written and performed <laughs> by me <laughs> for your sins <laughs> usually usually people would pay not to hear that <laughs> oh, it's worth hearing ah uh, happy days happy happy days right on that whimsical note <laughs> we'll say goodbye Say goodbye, Tom. Goodbye. And it's bye-bye from me.